0: Well, welcome back to another episode of The Andrew Giuliani with yours truly, Andrew Giuliani. And today you get an audio version, which uh, I don't know, I guess for you it's uh, probably lucky. You don't have to see my face all angry while I'm talking about the exodus from New York City and from New York State. And by the way, you know I've talked about this a whole lot. I talked about this while I was a gubernatorial candidate. Uh, I've talked about it as a radio host here at WABC. I talked about it on TV before that. Um, Even while I was in the White House, something that I really focused on that last year as well. Um, But what I have to tell you is, this is not just something that I say that is not backed up by the facts. right? Our Democratic friends across the aisle they end up making bold statements, many of them being fictional because they cannot back it up with the facts with the data. Well, let us start off with the sometimes unsexy data. The truth is that 2%, over 2% of New York City taxpayers actually left New York City during the pandemic. Now, I talked a whole lot about this time and time again. And the reason why New Yorkers are leaving is because they make a risk assessment and they ask for the value that I'm paying in New York, for the premium that you pay here in New York City, in New York State to live, what am I getting for that value? What am I getting for that premium that I'm paying? When you think of the fact that The highest taxpayers in New York end up paying more than any other state, including California, nearly 15 percent extra of their income on top of their tax bracket being at 38, 39 percent, their federal tax bracket. The government between the federal government, the state government and the local government, they are the senior partner in their relationship. Now, that's not everybody's situation. But I will tell you, it does have an effect on other New Yorkers. I'm going to focus in a little bit on regulation because this is something that's chasing businesses out of New York. This is something that I had some time to focus on while I was working in the Trump administration. And I think it was one of the great successes of the Trump administration that doesn't get mentioned enough. And it probably doesn't get mentioned because, guess what? Regulation is complex. It's not sexy. But... The truth is, it's one of the cogs in the economic wheel that either make our U.S. economy or New York State economy economy roll along or makes it stop and make people assess whether or not New York City, New York State is the place to do business. So as you go deeper into these numbers and you see exactly exactly, what this means, Uh, it's extremely worrying when you see that the millionaire taxpayers really just left at a rate of four times what they did pre-pandemic. So basically, they're leaving four times faster now. And guess who's picking them up? Florida is picking them up. When you look at what that means from an income perspective, it means New York's income sank by over $15 billion. As a matter of fact, close to $16 billion. Now, what does that mean? Now, you think about this. Okay, well, is Andrew out here advocating for those millionaires that are making tons and tons of money? The truth is, I'm advocating for New York City and New York State, because you want those people here in New York that are helping to flip the bill, so that way we can pave our roads. That way you can... Have the police department at full force, which is a whole other issue, which we focused on and we'll certainly focus on some more. But that way you can have the civil servant jobs. But when you see these people and these businesses leaving at this rate, it's a warning sign. It's letting you know that they are making a value assessment and saying for the premium that I'm paying in New York, I am not getting the services necessary And frankly, I don't feel safe enough to be able to continue my life, my business here in New York. That's why you're seeing people leave at such a rate. Um, And as we look forward and as we see what we can do with this, I mean, the truth is this is really going to have to be something that comes from the Democrats because you have right now super majorities in the state Senate, in the state assembly, And as much as I or some of my Republican friends yell about the problem here, as much as we highlight this, as much as we say that there is an impending disaster here in the state of New York that's likely to be reached by the end of this current decade, you got to remember, they are looking more than to their right. They're looking to their left. And what's to the left of those Democrats is a big, dark hole called socialism. That's right. Socialism hasn't worked anywhere else in the world, in the history of our world. It's one of the things that's pushing this anti-Semitism out here in New York, the second largest Jewish population to Israel in the world, and you're seeing anti-Semitism all over the place. Trace it right back to the roots of socialism. But guess what? The Dems are more worried about that than they are about the... Republicans that are talking about pro-business, that are laying out a plan and a strategy to make New York a more fiscally responsible place, a place where businesses can thrive and should thrive. And this is where I end up getting to regulation. One of the major successes, and if you heard me on the campaign trail, you heard me give this spiel because this is something, again, didn't get enough focus. One of the major successes of the Trump administration was how the regulatory reform of the United States of America was enacted starting on January 20th, 2017 under President Trump and continued until the day he left Washington, D.C. in 2021. I'm going to read for you a presidential document from the Federal Register where the president lays out exactly his purpose for reducing regulation. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's two and a half pages, and it puts you to sleep. I'll tell you where you can read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the first section, because so you get an idea of this. This is an executive order, 13771, and it was signed January 30th. That's my birthday, 2017. Actually, that was the day after he announced that Gorsuch was going to be the first Supreme Court nominee for President Trump. I remember being there the night of January 29th, uh, and they had a wonderful event in the state dining room, I believe it was, um, where they had everybody back there, and, and that was the first announcement, announcement of his Supreme, first Supreme Court uh, justice. I digress, but this executive order, which I think was so important to the success, the economic success of the country under President Trump under the first three years— here's the purpose. It is the policy of the executive branch to be prudent and financially responsible in the expenditure of funds, financially responsible. And you can see what states are being financially responsible and which are not, right? We've talked about this. Florida, their budget, about $100 billion. New York City's budget, $101 billion. Ours is as much, likely more, then the whole state of Florida, again, New York City, 8.5 billion residents. Florida has nearly 20 million, and our budget is more or less equal to the state of Florida. New York State, similar populations. Florida actually has more people. We have about 18.5 million people. Florida has 20. Guess what? New York State's budget, $240 billion. Florida, about $100 billion. You tell me who's doing it better. Okay. The purpose is the policy of the executive branch to be prudent and financially responsible in the expenditure of funds from both public and private sources. In addition to the management of the direct expenditure of taxpayer dollars through the budgeting process, it is essential to manage the costs associated with the federal, with the governmental imposition of private expenditures required to comply with federal regulations. Okay, it sounds a little boring. Let me get to this part here. Toward that end, it is important that for every one new regulation issued, at least two Prior regulations be identified for elimination. Let me repeat that. It is important that for every one new regulation issued, at least two prior regulations be identified for elimination, and that the cost of planned regulations be prudently managed and and controlled through a budgeting process. So, That was the president's goal set in the first 10 days of his administration. For every regulation he add into law, he cut two. So how did President Trump end up doing with that? Well, guess what? When he walked out of office, that number was over eight to one. That's right, my friends. For every regulation he signed into law, he cut over eight of them. And that's why by early 2020, you saw The lowest unemployment rate since before man walked on the moon. And the lowest unemployment rate in the history of our country for African-Americans, for Asian-Americans, and for Hispanic-Americans. Why is that? Because this, more than anything, directly affected small business. You got to remember, it's not necessarily those big Fortune 500 companies that don't love regulation or I should say that hate regulation, yeah, sure, for their bottom line, it's probably a little bit better if they don't have to deal with all of the regulations. And certainly in some instances it is. But also what a breadth of regulation ends up doing for these large companies that have the assets and the resources to deal with it they can actually take those assets and resources and deal with these codes in different states, the federal codes, these tens of thousands, and in the, in the federal case, hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations, and they can deal with it. Whereas for a small business, a mom-and-pop business, they don't have the time or the resources to be able to do that. They don't have groups of counsel. So for the larger businesses, guess what? That ends up being, in some ways, an advantage because it hurts potential competition that would rise up. It makes the barrier to entry that much higher. So these regulations end up helping those small business owners, those that are interested in entrepreneurship. The cutting of these regulations helps them. That's why what President Trump did was so important When we talk about draining the swamp and why this really needs to continue from an economic health standpoint in 2025, because we've seen since President Trump left office and under the Biden administration, these regulations start, sadly, to go in the wrong direction and grow again. Why? Honestly, it was probably because it was a Trump policy. Right. We saw this with the border crisis. Um, President Trump had illegal immigration down to the lowest that it has been in decades. And President Biden reversed it solely because it was something that President Trump talked about. That's it. Not because it was sound policy for the United States of America, but because Trump is the bad guy. It was reactionary. That's disastrous, ladies and gentlemen. That's what you have in Washington, D.C. Think about from An energy independence standpoint. Killing the Keystone Pipeline. That's right on Biden. Now guess what? The U.S., we are reliant on bad actors like Iran, on those that we have very complicated relationships, Saudi Arabia, for our oil. Very different under the Trump years. When you have energy independence, my friends, that means you don't need to go begging on your hands and knees. That means you could be strong on other issues. But that's not what we have here today, ladies and gentlemen. So look, from a regulatory standpoint, New York is pretty much the worst. We are actually second to California. We have Over 300,000 pages of regulation on the books. California actually beats us pretty handily in this. They have nearly 400,000. I think it's 396,000 pages of regulations on the books. But New York is second at over 300,000. I think it's 306,000 pages if you're really keeping track of this. And that's why many businesses and many people are leaving New York. One of the many reasons why many people are leaving New York, and frankly, leaving California as well. Anytime we're competing with California this day and age, except if you're talking about from a beautiful view standpoint, which guess what? California has beautiful views. More people are looking and saying, you know what? I'm going to take those Pacific Palisades, as beautiful as they are, and I'm going to move my way over to Arizona or to Texas or to Florida. Same things happen in New York. No matter how amazing New York is, the more people that look and make a risk assessment, the more are starting to say, Time to leave. Okay, second thing I want to talk about today is the new approval ratings, if you'd call it that, of the Biden administration from a group that I really respect. And I actually don't have any personal relationship with this group. So this is not something that I'm telling you from having uh, you know, a long relationship. It's not like we used to go to lunch in D.C. and we're buddies or anything like that. I've just followed as a consumer, as somebody who looks at the polls, who's interested, who likes to then go back and look and say, who got it right? Well, 2016, most polling firms got it wrong. One of the very few was TIPP Insights. There's a group actually from New Jersey. If I'm not mistaken, and this is going back to what I'm thinking over here, I think they're from Ramsey, New Jersey, from Bergen County. Um, but I've been very impressed with how they've polled the election. I think they ended up nailing like 49 out of 50 of the states uh, in the 2016 election. Um, and so they start talking now about, or I should say they did a poll that really breaks down the struggles Of Biden's job approval. And what they highlight is the fact that uh, in November, Biden's approval rating was at 39 percent, pretty low and dismal. Now, in December, it's down to 33 percent, the lowest of his presidency. Um, And something that uh, actually is kind of shocking, to be honest, because as bad as it's gotten and as bad as we know it is, You'd still think there'd be that anti-Trump group out there, but I think it's starting to show that that group, or at least part of that group, is starting to soften a little bit. I think as much as Biden talks about Bidenomics, as we covered a couple weeks back here on the show, uh, you, can't, you can't just go start talking about Bidenomics and, uh, and not back that up with the numbers and the data. And guess what? People are going to realize that, hey, wait a second, the economy is significantly worse to a place where you can't spin it if you're the White House under Biden than it was under President Trump. So going deeper into this, you can see that only two thirds of Democrats approve of the job he's doing as president. By the way, in order to win reelection, you need at least 85, more like 90 percent of your party to approve of the job you are doing to say that you will vote for them fourth president in order to win. Actually, the voting really needs to be closer to 95% in this highly partisan atmosphere. But they end up going into all different issues. And I want to get into this because this really ends up going into the breakdown. The first issue, which I think as we talk about everything in this high inflationary environment, um, the first issue that I think most New York, most Americans are going to go to the polls for in January, I should say, in November of 2024, is how Biden has botched the economy. Um, overall, one half, 55 percent, give Biden a D or an F in his handling of the economy. Only 24 percent of respondents give him good grades. Even the majority of Democrats don't give him good grades. Only 47 percent of Democrats actually give him good grades passing marks for the economy. uh, 81% of Republicans say he has failed this test. Uh, Not surprising. Again, you go back and watch from a couple weeks ago when I covered Bidenomics versus the Trump economy here on the Andrew Giuliani Show, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about and exactly why, frankly, you can't spin this. It's in the numbers. It's in the data. And I think it's probably wise of President Trump to talk about Bidenomics basically every single day between now and the second week in November, first week in November, 2024. Second issue, immigration. You will not be surprised to know that a majority, 56%, are dissatisfied with this handling of immigration, and only 18% are actually satisfied. 64% of independents are dissatisfied. I'm actually surprised that independent number isn't a little bit higher. I would have thought that number would be in the 75 percentile range, but two thirds, I I can understand that. Um, And the fact that only less than one in five Americans are satisfied with his job on immigration shows you just how terrible a job that it's been, just how much he has actually botched this from crime. I mean, look, weak immigration policies, they have contributed to our increasing in crime here in New York and all across the United States of America. Uh, Over half from this poll, 54%, give Biden failing grades on his handling of crime. Only 19%, again, give him an A or a B. And even among Democrats, uh, he is barely passing in this. Anti-Semitism, it's been a major issue. Uh, Not doing too well. Three-fourths of respondents have called anti-Semitism... And anti-Jewish presidents, either a very serious or a somewhat serious problem. And many feel that Biden has not addressed the problem forcefully. Only one-fourth, 24%, give him good grades with regards to anti-Semitism. Foreign policy, guess what? Two wars, two wars have started under President Biden's watch. That's right. Ukraine and now Israel and the terrorist regime of Hamas. he is in this poorly, as you can imagine, handling our foreign policy. I'm looking at this as a, it's done a little bit differently than the other ones. But basically, 21 uh, percent of Republicans, which I'm surprised even 21 percent, uh, approve of his uh, of his handling of foreign policy, while 50 percent of Democrats are optimistic at the way that he has handled this. Uh, From the Israel-Hamas conflict, 46% are unhappy with his handling of the conflict. Um, I'm really shocked that that number's not more. I mean, I guess that's the media holding weight for him. But look, you can say whatever you want. Again, the proof is in the pudding. When you're giving $10 billion to Hamas right before this and then still wanting to give Iran money, and i mean, giving $10 billion to Iran, who's then funneling money, to Hamas, and then giving more money after the attacks, and understanding this humanitarian aid, this is going to be gobbled up right by Hamas in order to strike Israel, um, then you've completely failed, which leads to the next talking point. Handling Iran. I should say the next topic, handling Iran. A segment of Americans think that the six billion dollars Biden gave to Iran has helped fund Hamas's terrorist activity. Um, nearly one half and 49 percent give him a failing grade, while only 19 percent give him good grades. And those 19 percent, they have to be extreme partisans uh, on the U- Russia-Ukraine war. Forty five percent give him a D or an F in the handling of the war. Only 27 percent see Biden in a positive light and then on handling of China where Joe is owned by China. When you look at how much his son has made off of China, how it is likely that vice president Biden altered American policy in order for his son to be getting direct payments from China into his private equity firm. Only one in five give him good grades on China Uh, and Democrats Only 42% of Democrats are satisfied. So less than half, basically two in five. So this is really a low point in the Biden presidency. Again, you could see this at uh, TIPP Insights. They, I think, are one of the best. I think they really highlight it well in terms of how this all is. Well, with that, it was... uh Great to be with you again here on the Andrew Giuliani Show. we got a couple of very special guests coming up here in the coming weeks. I'm not going to announce them just yet because uh, I want this to be a bit of a surprise, but uh, this is somebody who um, I got to spend a lot of time with when I was in the White House and somebody who uh, means a whole lot to me and I think somebody who's very appropriate to have during the holidays here. So I'm excited about one of our guests. Um, again, that's a little bit of a tease right there. But just gonna have to keep on tuning into the Andrew Giuliani show. In the meantime, uh, New Yorkers, we got to cut these regulations. We got to be competitive with some of our other states here in the union that are doing it better than us. And guess what? If Joe Biden's job approval keeps on dipping like this, in some ways, I actually don't want it to dip as fast as it is. It keeps on dipping like this. Then guess what? They may actually just replace him at this point. I mean, at 33%, um, you could see that the alarm bells are certainly going off in the Democratic Party. I want him to kind of stay in the, in the mid to high 30s here up until maybe, let's see, the summer of 2024, and then President Trump will get to run against him and hopefully... Pound him into retirement. Okay, my friends, thank you very much for your time as only, uh, as always. Thank you very much for your time, as always. And uh, I look forward to talking with you next week here on the Andrew Giuliani Show.